Welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. My name is CJ, and we're joined for the second time by Nick Jones, who's a transmedia storyteller and senior narrative designer for Shark Mob Games. He's the author of the book, The Player and the Pentacle, and as of 2022, he's transplanted from Auckland, New Zealand to London. There's a couple of audio issues in this episode because we kept on having connection problems. I think we've cleared them out, but if you just bear with us, that'd be great. Right, welcome, Nick. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, man. Now, now, just for a recap, since the last time we talked on this podcast, you have moved across the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's been a been a big year for me. And 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 this was the shift from um, you were living in Auckland, New Zealand, and you've moved to London, and this was to continue your career in narrative design for video games. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Um, I've been uh, applying for for a few years at um, some of the biggest studios, trying to sort of uh, advance my career after working as a freelancer for, gosh, I think, was it almost almost six years? I think working as a freelancer, um, and yeah, finally finally got the got the call uh, and headed over here. Um, so I'm at, at uh, a studio called, called Shark Mob Games at the moment, which is a, uh, well, it's a, a London studio, but it's a offshoot of a studio in Sweden and in, in Malmo um, as well. Nice. And and this is the kind of um, journey that I'm always really interested in. And I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast are interested in because these, these weird creative careers that we have, they're always lumpy and they're always unexpected. And I mean, I mean, for a lot of people, me included, that thought of, I'm, I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and I'm packing up my entire life, as it were, to go literally to the other side of the world. And there's this amazing opportunity and these dreams that you were pursuing for years, and they're coming together. And there's that side of it, the kind of giant excitement, I assume. And then there's also the just harsh reality of it's really fucking hard to move across the world to a new job, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, a lot, a lot harder than than i may have originally anticipated you know i i i, I tried not to to kid myself i knew things were were going to be tough uh but yeah it's it's been um difficult i i didn't expect to to move to the other side of the world at the same time that um the prices of living were going to go through the roof uh in london in particular but uh, all across the world and indeed across the uk as well I believe actually the the first day I arrived here, I caught an Uber to to meet my now lead at the studio for for a lunch. And when I was in the Uber, the Uber driver said to me, "Oh, we're going to have to take uh, another another way around the city because there's a big protest today because all the costs of living have gone up like crazy all of a sudden." Um, so, yeah, that was a, a, a great welcome to to the city. <laughs> Right, we are we are back because the internet across the world is more challenging than it should be. Um, you were saying that you had come across to the UK at the exact time that global supply shortages and inflation kicked in, and you were catching an Uber. And I think the next thing you were probably going to say was the Uber was really goddamn expensive. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was expensive, but uh, no. The uh, what what happened was my Uber driver said to me, "Oh." We're going to have to take a different route around the city because there's a massive protest happening today, and it, it happened to be a protest against uh, the uh, living 
energy costs with the the power companies and everything um um, and i was told that i can't remember the exact percentage that they said it went up but it was just an insane amount um i mean to give you give you an example when when those new rates kicked in which was um a few months later so in october my monthly power bill went from about 60 70 pounds to 280 so yeah pretty pretty insane so so that has been probably the most challenging part of moving here is sort of all the all the research that i did before coming here around like cost of living and sort of what i needed to get by kind of went out the window as soon as i arrived so it's been you know i'm i'm doing all right i've got a regular job so i i don't want to complain there are definitely people worse off than me uh but it has definitely been um you know, a, a stretch to, to sort of get by at times. And, and that has been tough, uh, you know, when you're, you've moved across the world for your dream job and, um, and then you have to deal with that sort of stuff. <laughs> how, how was it um, beyond the prices themselves? What was the shift like? Like, like did you have some sense of, I guess, dislocation or, or was, the, was there that kind of landing pad period where it was all a bit strange or how, how did that feel? Yeah, um, I, I actually likened it to uh, when when I don't know if you have pets um, or, or or cats in particular. I, yeah. I'm I'm a cat person, and when you when you move a cat to a new place, um, you you know start them off in a small room in the new house, and then gradually introduce them right to the rest of the house, and they are usually pretty cautious and wary for a while until they sort of get used to it. Um, I, I felt very much like a cat uh, when I got here. You know, it was it was very much uh, my work had put me up in an Airbnb for the first month, and as soon as I got here, it became, um, you know, it was scary to sort of go out uh, and yeah, and sure. sort of explore, or to go too far away from the Airbnb because um, I don't know if you have you been to London before? Yeah. Yeah, so you'll be aware the buildings are huge and the city is large in general, much larger than anything in New Zealand. So um, in that sense, it's, it's, it's very intimidating when you first get here. So I think for probably the first three to four weeks, um, I, I found it difficult to sort of go out very often other than to, to work um, because it was just so overwhelming. So many people yeah, everywhere. Sure. Um, yeah, a, a big culture shock. The the biggest culture shock for me, actually being a, a New Zealander, was the difference in how people treat their rubbish and recycling here compared right. to New Zealand. Uh, there was there was a period I actually I happened to move over here with a friend um, a friend of mine moved here at the same time, and there was a period of time where I was uh, constantly. Uh, complaining to him or, or maybe not complaining but like i was very worried for for a period of time about what to do with my weekly rubbish because uh the airbnb owner had just said i'll oh, just put it out on the street and i thought i thought surely there's a there's a bin or something but no you just stick the bag out on the street and and hope the rats don't get in it and uh yeah that was that was pretty wild um thankfully i'm i'm in a in a sort of more suburban area now where where you do have rubbish bins and and it's more more in line to uh what we do in new zealand but it was it was a real bother um at first uh because i didn't want to like you know spread my crap all over the street (laughs) (laughs) that's really interesting you say though i um 
just hearing you talk has made me think about um, I moved to the US, um, I want to say it was 2010 and um, a completely different experience. But some of the things you're saying feel very, very familiar. For, for me, it was the actual trip, which was a flight from Auckland to LAX and then LAX to Washington, D.C. Um, and even that, and, and that's, I think at the best of times, that's a pretty long and grueling plane flight. But um, as I was going over there, there was a, a typo in my visa that the American consulate in New Zealand had done. Um, it was it was a complete accident. But so I, I'm on this enormously long plane flight across the the, the ocean. Um, like you, we've kind of packed up our life. We're going off to this big thing. And we arrive at LAX, we're very tired. And just going through the customs queue, the guy says, oh, no, you have to come with me. There's a problem. And I'm, I've, I, I haven't slept for like 24 hours. I'm exhausted. And um, I, I get taken into this little room and I'm like, what is going on? Like, oh, you know, this thing on your visa is wrong. And it was this thing of, um, in theory, they were supposed to put me back on the plane and send me back home immediately. But they were, they were extraordinarily helpful. They, they kept me there for four hours, but they called up the New Zealand consulate out of hours and did a whole bunch of thing and, and, and it got sorted. But so I'm, I, I'm kind of let out onto the causeway of LAX after just this kind of very weird experience. And there's still another flight over to DC and we go over to DC and, um, it was, it was the middle of summer. And so we arrived very, very early in the morning in DC and we got to this place where our apartment was and it's about 30 degrees centigrade at like nine o'clock in the morning, which would never happen in New Zealand. And our apartment was there, it was ready for us, but its air conditioning was broken. And so I remember really clearly um, at, at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon on my first real day in this completely new country that I'd looked forward to moving to so much. And I've been awake for like two days and I've been not, not threatened, but like, you know, there was a big problem with immigration. And now I'm lying on the floor of this apartment with the heat rising and no air conditioning. And there's just this sense of like, what the hell is going on? And it was this kind of just um, massive dislocation. Um, and then once we got over that, it was it was great. It was a really welcoming place. But very small things after that just seemed so weird to me. And getting used to the way that people greeted each other or um, the way that you got your mail was really weird to me because we'd never had a mailman back in New Zealand, like a real mailman who'd come and deliver stuff. And um, it was this whole period of looking back, um, there was, it was probably three months at least where I was just quite out of sorts. And, and it, was, it was me trying to navigate this new space, um, both physically and emotionally. And the same thing you're talking about, um, I didn't have a way to calibrate how far I could go from home. And that sounds so stupid if, if, if you're just kind of living somewhere and quite comfortable. I was like, um, um, for some reason, even though there was nothing stopping me in the first few weeks, I don't think I, I, I went more than about 500 meters from where we stayed. And it was just a real shift. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It's a, it's a very strange feeling, isn't it? Um, I, I actually, I had to go to uh, to Sweden um, the second month I was here for for a, a work conference, um, and that was that was quite scary actually because it was sort of like not only have I gone super far away from home, 
but now I'm going far away from this new home that I barely know, know even further away, right? And and I actually had a similar experience on uh, at the the airport uh, on the way back. Um, I was I was detained uh, at the United Kingdom Airport. Uh, sorry, the United Kingdom Airport, London Heathrow Airport. Yeah, and uh, they detained me because. When I had first entered the United Kingdom, um, the customs officer was supposed to put a stamp uh, on on my visa, and didn't for whatever reason. And so, I mean, I wasn't there for nearly as long as you. I think it was maybe forty minutes before they let me go. But they were not nice or helpful at all. Oh, they were yeah. they were looking to you know make an example um, out of out of me, even though it wasn't my fault technically so i had to sit there and wait as they like tried to figure things out and um they threatened to put me on a plane back to new zealand um which was quite intense because i'm thinking i've got a cat at my home in london that's like <laughs> like starved to death if they do that like uh, yeah so yeah no it's it's pretty pretty intense being being far away from like the security of of home and family and friends and and, you know knowing that there's always some sort of thing you can fall back on if if things go awry nice that that that's really interesting and and it's so interesting that we've both had similar but different experiences on on the visa problems yeah Um, yeah the visa stamps (laughs) possibly happens more often than we might like to know um um and and sort of contrasting that when we talked last time and, and just in, in the things that I've known about you for a while, um, it feels like you've always had a broad sense of the, the work you wanted to do in the world, the things you wanted to explore with story and narrative, obviously in your book as well. Um, how does, how does that feel now that, that, that broad arc of what you're doing with your life versus the day to day, adjusting your things, settling in, figuring stuff out. What's, what's that experience been like? Um, yeah, it's it's again a, a, a strange feeling, right? Because there there's a sense of like your life being sort of split into two different compartments in a way. Um, you know, I go to work, and um, it's it's enjoyable, it's exciting, um, and uh, you know, being being a senior, I've got people coming to me for. Um, help and questions and stuff all the time so it kind of you know it gives you that sense of like yeah i've i've, I've made it you know <laughs> uh nice. but then then you you know you come home and you're like cooking dinner and and unpacking like a grocery box and um trying to figure out how to pay your bills and 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 all of that and and so it's like particularly after working as an indie for so long and trying to 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 break into um the big studios which yeah is much easier to do when you live in a country where there are big studios. So I think living in New Zealand, trying to do that, it, it was almost like it felt probably bigger than it actually is. Um, sure. And so, so yeah, there's a, there's a strange sense of like everything's changed, but nothing has changed as well. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's just, it's bizarre. Sometimes it feels like a dream. Sometimes it feels yeah, like yeah. a nightmare. Sometimes it feels like mundane life. <laughs> it's so interesting. As you say, you sort of made it to what you had imagined was the big time and it's, and it's going well and, and you're enjoying it. And you're also, but you're also still at night at the sink doing your tea bags, sort of cooking your chips, 
life goes on, right? It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and, and speaking of which, so obviously one of the core things of the podcast, um, in general is that we talk about these really interesting creative journeys that we all go on that are all very different. And part of that is the tools we use. And one of the things that has been happening very rapidly over the past six weeks is we have a new generation of these AI tools that are sweeping the world. And we've already done a podcast a few weeks ago with our friends Simon Pullman and Scott Shoulder, who are entertainment attorneys, who have jumped into this and are trying to figure it out. And no one quite knows what's going on. But there's this fascinating, expanding global conversation around these AI tools. And I'm talking about things like ChatGPT especially, which is the language one that everyone's talking about, the image ones like Midjourney and Dali. But the thing that I've been most interested in is talking with practitioners people who are actually making stuff, who are, who are getting into these tools and trying things with them. I, 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 I appreciate that the internet has opinions and the internet will always have opinions. But in my experience, when people actually dive into these tools, they get a much more nuanced and interesting perspective on what they can do. And I've seen, I think already, that you've been really starting to put ChatGPT through its paces. And I'd love to talk about your experiences with that and then broaden it out into a wider sense of where do we potentially think this is going because it is going some pretty interesting places yeah yeah no it's it's amazing what what's happening at the moment and i'm i'm annoyed that i uh ignored it for as long as i did um you know in the in the sort of last last few months of last year i i was vaguely aware of of things starting to happen um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the concept artists at our studio will use things like Midjourney to sort of start their ideas. Uh, so, so I had an awareness um, of of art based AI, um, but that was sort of about it until I don't know, maybe three weeks ago. Really, it's it's not been very long since awesome. I started um, looking into ChatGPT in particular um, and and sort of exploring that whole world um, and. Yeah, I, I, it's. I mean, I'm I'm kind of left speechless in a way um, w with what it can do, and and I think you know there's there's definitely um, you know there's it's, it's almost like there are, there are three camps of people when it comes to this sort of thing, right? There's there are people that are kind of uh, blasé about it that that are just like they they they're aware of it and they're like oh yeah it's pretty cool but whatever it's not going to change things that 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 much uh, and that was sort of the camp that i was in for for a while uh there, there's people that have like a knee-jerk reaction to it yeah. uh and and kind of freak out either, either freaking out that it's going to take jobs or, or freaking out that it's like a scam and and i think that's understandable considering what we all went through with crypto and bitcoin and nfts and everything over the last year and a bit uh there's always some new thing of bullshit for a large po portion of the internet to jump on and yeah, it's like is this yeah. just the next bit of bullshit that we're supposed to believe in but I, I i suspect we may think differently yeah yes yeah i mean it's it's understandable because it's coming out in the shadow of all of that stuff but but i think what the difference is between the sort of crypto stuff and and ai is like crypto stuff was all very much like there are these crazy new technologies and they're going to make you billions of dollars, but we can't really explain too well what they are and we can't really show you too well what they are. Um, whereas things like ChatGPT, it's like, 
It's AI. You ask it a question, it answers it. You can work with it to do whatever. Look here, play with it. You'll see what I mean. And and so it's very easy nice. to like um, see. Okay, yeah, no, this is this is different. And and I think that's where the the final sort of camp is are, are those of us that have played with it, can see the potential of it, and are kind of like flabbergasted at that and um, excited about uh, where this will go in the future. You know, I. I'm fully along the lines that this is kind of the next internet, right? Like this is what what happened in the, the late 90s when the internet became public use. Um, we're sort of seeing a version of that today, I think. Um, nice. So yeah, very, very exciting. It's a it's a really interesting and really useful way of dividing it, I think. And, and, and I agree absolutely. The the, the classic criticism of blockchain, especially um, separate from cryptocurrency, was that it's a really interesting solution in search of a problem. Like it's a beautiful kind of socially economic way to construct a network. And you go, wow. And it's so intellectually beautiful that you then get led down this incredible path of, well, something so beautiful, that, you know, of course it will change the world. And you had that whole wave of um just ridiculous hucksters that always seem to follow these trends and and um yeah and and as you say it's really interesting to say that thing of um but if you if you took um cryptocurrency out of the equation and you just sat a normal person down in front of a blockchain as it were it would be quite hard to quickly convey like yeah this is the thing that you can actually do with it and i think a lot of people's experience with the chat gpt interface really are the exact reverse as you say you start talking to it and this thing talks back to you and it really has very little of that kind of it's a robot feeling that all of the earlier generations of this stuff had um yeah i mean i start how like my my story with it basically is um uh well my my um new year's resolution this year was to uh get back into um screenwriting um oh. you know I, I i studied screenwriting as as one of my masters um and though i love games um i i think i would probably move into film if i could uh and so i thought well all right i'm going to set myself a goal of writing three screenplays this year uh feature length to a third draft stage for each and and hopefully by that point you know like I'll, I'll be good enough to like actually start you know making some movement in that industry and and so i i i did that i started i, I wrote the first draft of, of my first screenplay and uh as i was doing that this was sort of when i started to become aware of chat gbt um and so i just thought you know I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at it and the way i'll have a look at it is i'll use this screenplay that i've written and sort of see what chat gpt can do to help with that um and so i think the first thing i did was i i sort of gave it like the premise of the screenplay and asked it to write an elevator pitch for it um and it was it was serviceable it's probably not the best pitch out there um but you know it, it was it was enough to like pique my interest and go okay this is this is yeah very interesting because uh, for me one of the hardest things is is uh with screenwriting is an elevator pitch because trying to condense complex ideas down into like 30 words is is always a, a nightmare uh so yeah that sort of took out the the annoyance of that for me uh so the next thing i did was uh the, the screen particular screenplay had a, a a scene in it um that i wasn't sure how to write because uh the the film is set in present day but there uh, there is a scene between 
a, a, a young man from present day uh, who encounters a undead medieval knight. And this medieval knight uh, was to teach him how to fight with this magic sword, essentially. Uh, and, and I thought, okay, well, what I would really like here is is a situation in which this like person who knows nothing about sword fighting or anything like that learns from this guy who spent his entire life training in it and and what would that look like and and i thought i don't want to have to do days of research into like medieval warfare and sword play and tactics and all that sort of stuff so i just chucked it into chat gpt and i said hey can you write me um a scene uh one of the characters is present day person doesn't know anything about this basically described the scene to them and said can you write me um i think i actually said can you choreograph a um, sword fight for me uh that demonstrates that this knight is teaching this guy uh and and it should be historically accurate and use like proper uh sword fighting techniques and and something along those lines and um and it pumped out a scene for me and and that scene ended up being in the script in the end um i i did edit a few things to make it more in my voice and and um and fit with the tone uh but that was really helpful because it meant i didn't have to spend all that time researching um and so i was yeah playing around with it with with screenwriting and then then started to think okay you know all these people are saying that ai are coming for our jobs and so i was like well how do i like how do i protect my job and i thought well you you can't put you once technology is out you can't take it back right you can't put the genie back in the yeah. bottle so i thought well the best way to deal with it probably is to become as proficient as possible with it and kind of be like an expert in how it can be used for my particular industry so this is this is uh, and and you've seen the the results of this um off pod right but um this is where i put it through its paces and i gave it possibly one of the most difficult jobs that I have to do as a narrative designer, um, which is uh, taking a, a location in a game and uh, building history onto it and then conveying that history to the player through environmental storytelling, through visual clues, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I sat down with it and I said, said to it um, basically that, uh, well, actually, let me back up. The The thing that I learned with, with ChatGPT at this point is giving the right prompts is really important. Yeah. Um, and so what I've found that works the best is to say to it initially, um, I want you to act as. Yes. And then, yeah, this is a key insight. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I want you to act as a narrative designer and game writer is what I said. And then I said to it, uh, I will provide you. Um, which is the next key phrase i will provide you uh, with a location in an open world action adventure rpg game in the vein of elden ring right is what i said and and uh i will give you uh information about this location how it looks in the present day for the player and i will also give you um information on a historical event that happened here 200 years ago in the past um and then I said to it, I want you to provide me with um, a description of the scene as you understand it, basically, you know, compiling all that information and 
a uh, sorry, my my cat has decided. It's awesome! To, I love to make the cat moments on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I get I gave it this, uh, asked it to to describe the location for me, basically condense that information, and then provide me with uh, visual clues um, to explain the history uh, that happened here um, in a way that the player could uh, you know ingest just through playing the game. Um, and it pumped out a bunch of ideas for me. And uh, this this process took about five hours in total. Um, I was on it from the early evening to about 2 a.m. in the morning um, trying to sort of hone it um, because, you know, it was sort of like it would give some cliche ideas, it would give some interesting ideas, it would maybe contradict the information that I gave it from time to time. And so it was very much about sort of honing it down and honing it down over and over again um, until it got to a point where I was happy with it. Um, I mean, to give an example, um, I gave it a subplot uh, that had two characters that had traveled through this area um, at the same time as this historical event. And it was supposed to be an important but very well hidden sort of minor um, storyline. Um, Jeff Gomez would call it a, a narrative subroutine, right? Um, and, I wanted there to be like very like minimal clues that this happened, but enough that would prompt the player to sort of recontextualize what they knew about the scene. Um, and so these two characters were a, a 10 year old boy and his wet nurse. This is you know medieval fantasy, right? And uh, so it gave me a bunch of ideas. Some of them were stupid. Like um, it wanted the player to come across a child's footprint in the mud. And I'm thinking, well, the player is coming to this location 200 years after, so there's probably no footprint. But um, so I'd say, ignore that idea, ignore that idea. You know, wanted a teddy bear there, ignore that idea. Um, and we ended on uh, two two ideas. One was a like a little cave or crevasse in the nearby forest that had some like uh, provisions in there that were very old, something that looked like it might have belonged to a child. Um, very hard to come across. It was the important part with that. And then the other one uh, it provided was uh, an ornate um, locket that had like a royal crest on it um, because these characters are from like the royal family. Uh, and I said to it, keep these two ideas, but with the locket, uh, I want you to turn this into a an item uh, that players can pick up around the world and use. Uh, so it's not an item unique to this specific area, but by placing this kind of usable item in this area, it can like suggest something. Um, and so I gave it like an item description and, and that had like a little bit of a hint in it. Um, and, and so put that all together and place that in the scene as well. Um, and that was, I thought that was very impressive. Um, where it got confused uh, was uh, after what you will have seen actually um because i it was too confusing to include in the pdf i found was i said to it once it had constructed this sort of a, a brief of the whole thing that we've been working on i said to it i'm going to give you two more historical events that occurred in this location uh, one 300 years ago and one 500 years ago and i took it through the same process um, and i also said to it, in addition to this there will be a sequel to this game that is set 100 years in the future from the first game and so when the player visits this area in the sequel they should see the effects of the player from the first game 
and that broke it. Um, nice, it, nice. It, it, it's really cool to make that point. It loop and, and just <laughs> muddled things. It told me, oh, uh, 500 years ago, you can see evidence of this thing that happened 200 years ago. And I'm like, you have no concept of time right now. Like, <laughs> um, so it definitely, uh, it it's not perfect. Um, and, yeah. and I think it's a collaborative tool. It requires back and forth and honing. But I think... Um, when I next go to do the same um, uh, exercise with it, uh, I'll probably get there a lot faster because I've learned now um, after seeing what it can and can't do, the kinds of questions I should ask and what questions I should condense together into one, um, you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, and then the only other thing that I've done so far is I had to um, construct a tarot deck um, for a game that I've been working on. Um, and and that was that was impressive as well it's really interesting and obviously i read through the pdf that you had of of the session as well to see a professional creator actually really going through these steps and digging and experimenting and as you say back and forthing um i think um a lot of the surface hype is very much people kind of doing stupid pet tricks on social media with these with these things and that's really cool but it's much more this kind of process where um, it's absolutely fascinating to me that it's almost like you put a mask on this blank machine and it tries to kind of fill itself into the mask and become a narrative designer or whatever you want. And then it then tries to act that way. And sometimes the mask slips Yeah, and yeah. you're like, you're, you're actually not, not, not alive yeah. at all. But you you're don't doing know very well as my about. assistant. Yeah. <laughs> but that sense that, um, that, with you grinding in for a proper session, as you say, sort of several hours of working with this thing um, as your assistant. And it really, um, that that PDF, that document you produced in that felt to me like a, a rich, interesting, entirely workable artifact. It's it's not bullshit, if you so to mean. Like, like mm. previous generations of these language models, they would they would struggle beyond a certain point to, to really produce something coherent. And a big part of it was you couldn't go back and say, yeah, tweak that, lift that, no, not that, do this in the way that you could with a real assistant. And that, that that's a fascinating process to me. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I, I played around with some of the older ones um, years ago or however long ago it was. Um, and I think the difference between this sort of generation of AI versus the old stuff, uh, or one of the key differences is its ability to remember um, what you've told it in the yes. past. I've been working with it um, on, a, on a tabletop game that I've been working on for a few years now with some friends um, in New Zealand and uh, uh, just sort of getting it to help with a bit of the busy work. Um, and I've been working with it on that for uh, a week now and I can still say to it, um, that thing that we talked about on Monday um, I want you to remember that specifically when we do this next next task. Um, and sometimes it, again, doesn't always get it right, but but more often than not, it'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that information um, and I'm going to give you new information based off that. And I think that's a real big point of difference, um, particularly for, um, uh, well, I mean, for everything, but, but as a storyteller, that's super helpful because, I mean, I can see a point where, you know, obviously, you have to work out the legalities of everything, which Simon's probably probably a better guy to talk to about this. But but I could see a, a day where, like, hopefully there there is a situation where I could stick in 
a 200 page story bible um, for an ip i'm working on tell it to remember that um, and then that's my law master and i can just say to it um, you know i want you to generate some story ideas for um, x y z um, based off that story bible um, and you know and then i can just pick and uh, pick and choose what i want and and adapt those ideas further um, and that's insane to, to think about I, I absolutely agree. And my my very poor non-technical understanding is that the chat GPT that we have access to right now is is really hobbled intentionally in a bunch of different ways. Um, it can't actually crawl the internet. It ha- in theory, it, it has very little internet access. And it's kind of, um, it's it, it's memory for what it can remember of what you're doing is is limited to a certain number of tokens, which, which is just mm. essentially words. Um, I absolutely agree that if when there is a, a paid full product version of this and part of it is that over time it starts to just have this bank of its understanding of the things you've taught it and over time a bank of this these are all the things that I know as Nick's assistant the unique things that you've trained it on and you think of like working with something like that for three or four years over time it would have this incredible um, um, artificial knowledge of all the things that you need it to do. And you could just kind of grab stuff out of it when you need it. Like, like um, that's the thing that I, I, I find probably the most interesting about the whole thing. And it was, it was something that happened with the image generators last year. Not just the point in time that we see right now of what these tools are, but how fast they are beginning to evolve. Um, in, in maybe um, March of last year, the image tools like Midjourney, they pretty consistently produced things that were interesting but obviously robotic. And there was lots of stuff they couldn't do. And they were frequently dismissed as toys. And then they upgraded from version 3 to version 4 of Midjourney in what I want to say was October last year. And all of a sudden, the, the conversation among artists goes from it's just a toy to ah we need to think about class action lawsuits and the very nature of our jobs type thing and i i i if if chat gpt is the first strongly publicly emergent version of something that is going to continue to evolve pretty fast i'm i'm immensely interested in what that looks like even 12 months from now yeah yeah i mean you 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 take it as far as it can go to into the domain of science fiction right and and you know you could see in i don't know probably 20 years time or even less considering how fast it's going like you know everyone's got a little little holographic animal buddy on their shoulder that's their their ai assistant or um you know it's sort well, of like the, this... the demons from um his dark materials um yes. but it's ai yeah. you know like well, I always think the thing like, like Nick, we we live absolutely in a science fiction world where you re, you read classic Asimov or any of those things, and and one of the big features of some of golden age sci-fi from the forties and and fifties was there was often this idea of a giant planetary computer that was almost godlike in its power, and you could ask the planetary computer any question and it would answer, and they got the details of Google wrong, but we've we've had that for twenty five years now. And, and, and it just feels so normal to us. And this next sense of, as you say, I mean, it, it, I would love it if it ended up being a hologram on our shoulders. There's something deeply, deeply aesthetically attractive about that. Yeah, yeah. But we're, um, I, I know it's a common reaction, but 
um, I wake up in the morning and I go, most of the things that I probably dreamed about as a six-year-old are sort of coming true, except for the flying cars, obviously. But the, there's a, it's it's quite strange to be living this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it'll be interesting to see how this amazing, exciting science fiction stuff converges with the fact that um you know we're in late stage capitalism and society yes. is gradually cascading downwards um uh you know what happens when um when society collapses but but we've all got ai assistance like <laughs> you know it's um or, or will the ai assistance somehow help us out of this problem um you know, i can hopefully. absolutely <laughs> I, I can absolutely see um for real people picking their way through the rubble of cities but with a fully functioning ai assistant kind of guiding them through the rubble if you sort of mean yeah, like, like that, yeah. that, that that real duality of yeah yeah the, it's um the last of us with like a, tu a tu <laughs> tutorial mode on <laughs> and it's exactly those kind of um not not stupid but like like those those really strong contrast things that i think tends to be the way that um the future actually arrives Mm. Um, you have like hyper crazy sci-fi tech in one side, but you're still making your cornflakes in the morning. Those, those type of back and forth. I mean, um, this is one thing I've, I've been talking with a lot of people offline about, um, and it is the, um, the kind of fast effect of something like, um, these, these type of AI products that do basically, they, to, to me, they take the middle chunk of knowledge work and they are quite good at doing it. Like, like you, you have your kind of architect, designer, guider role, which obviously you're in as, as a storyteller. And I think you have kind of cleanup roles at the other side of things where um, something's a bit of a mess and you have to make it right. But with all that knowledge work in the middle, all of the kind of grunt knowledge work, it seems to me that these tools are likely to get very good at quite fast. Um, so if I'm, if I'm running a company and I'm a late stage capitalist and I'm a little merciless and I realize that that team that used to have to be eight people, now if you have two people working with these AI assistants, they'll, they'll do the same output. Um, what happens to those that other group of people's jobs? And I think that's a rapidly approaching thing that people are going to have to consider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous really because like, if 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 people want to use this technology to like screw others out of out of you know a, a living wage or, or or whatever right you know it's a classic example of of capitalism eventually eating itself right because you get rid of all of your staff and replace them with ai so you don't have to pay the money well then no one has any money and no one can buy things and so it just it, it you know it can't survive on continual growth really it eventually just collapses and i mean that you know that's what we what we're talking about when we say late stage capitalism right so yeah i mean yeah it'll be scary interesting hopefully a little bit exciting to to see where, where it goes but um <laughs> but you know i i i was actually talking with my my co-writer today about it at, at um at the studio and 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 we were wondering about like you know what what ha like the question you just posed what happens when like you know you can't trust big corporations or the government or or tech companies right um like what happens there and we were theorizing well you know there's there are a bunch of smart people out there right there, there will be sort of like bootleg versions of this that are um anti-capitalist and and 
anti-establishment you know you'll have these little uh, you know and in 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 30 years time when we're all picking through the rubble as as you said um you know you'll have these little little factions that are fighting the good fight against the evil overlords but they're using all their little ais that can't be monitored by the the big brother or, or whoever right you know so so yeah i know i think i think jokes aside right i think we will see that sort of a, an approach happening more and more of like smaller companies that are like hey we don't care about money we just want to like help everyone um nice. and and you you can trust us and we'll, and this is why and this is how um so while something like chat gpt is huge at the moment um i have no illusions that, that um that the people running chat gpt are probably just looking for a massive paycheck um if they haven't already received that at this point i, uh, <laughs> I suspect a certain very large tech company is is providing that as we speak but yes it's yeah fascinating. yeah so so uh, you know there will be a point where it's like okay well now chat gpt is trying to sell us ads or, or it's monitoring our, our interests or likes or dislikes or whatever right and so where do we go from there do we want to go down the same um track as social media that just like ruined the internet for everyone um or do we want to resist you know resist and and fight for for a better world and and like really you know we're we're at a stage in human existence i think where it's make or it's a make or break moment right um you know you think about things like global warming right where we're already at a point where it's most likely too late to stop what's going to happen um it's more about mitigating the cost at this point and you know that it may seem hopeless and and it's because to a certain degree it is right um it, it is hopeless to a certain degree but hopelessness doesn't mean that you should give up um i i i like to um i i, I align myself with this um obscure philosophical concept um, of hopeful pessimism right um which is this idea that yeah we may all be doomed um the world may be about to like die and burn up and and all the heat the oceans may be rising um and there may be no hope but the right thing to do the ethical thing to do in the face of that is to hope anyway and to take action and fight um as best you can to try and make a better world um and i i think to bring it back to chat gpt and ai i think um that technology has the potential to really aid people in doing that um and in dealing with these insurmountable situations of of um you know rising costs of living and and rising oceans and and all of that stuff right um you know you can only hope that that that's going to be um if not a way out for for all of us a way for us to at least handle it um without losing our minds you know <laughs> That is such a magnificent note. I'm 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 going to finish us up right there. That's the, that's such a wonderful thing to end on, and it's the most Nick Jones thing that you could have <laughs> said, which I de which I deeply appreciate. Thank you, sir. Um, um, you're obviously still on this incredible journey as a storyteller. Um, where can people find you? Connect with you? See what you're doing? All those type of things. 
Um, I guess at the moment, LinkedIn's probably the best best location. Cool. Um, I do have a website, but I haven't really been doing much with it since I moved. Uh, it's sort of been on the back burner. Um, but yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Happy to chat with whoever. Um, uh, I don't know if you have like show notes or anything like that. But yep. if you if you want to use the um, if you want to chuck the PDF in there, you're more than welcome to as well. Oh, if cool. people yeah, want to see what I did with that. Um, but yeah. If, Find me on, on LinkedIn. Happy to chat. Brilliant. Nick Jones, thank you very much, my friend. No worries. Thanks for having me yet again. Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.